All right, so we are back for Thursdays at 12, and we're going to go ahead and start. If you got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue at verses 9 and 10, so we'll read that, and then we'll pray and we'll get going. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're going to pray then. Let's, uh, let's start. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we thank you for the letter that Peter wrote uh, to Christians and to us. Uh, help us to understand what you want us to know. Uh, help us to find our worth and um, our purpose in this world and you and what you've done for us. Um, God, help us to trust that you are good in suffering and to understand uh, what we are to do in it and who we are because of your Son. Um, Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the cross and that you've given us life. You've given us mercy instead of death. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, one of the common things that all people face and have uh, as a whole, I think especially the college age group, we could argue, I think all people especially, uh, is that we all have this gnawing thought and idea that we have to be somebody, we have to do something and go somewhere. Like, we have to be known, we have to have a purpose in life, we have to have a future, something to hope in. Uh, that's kind of all we do. And if you think about it, it makes sense because the first things that we ask somebody when we meet them are usually two questions. Hey, what's your name and what do you do? So even just in innate nature, we know, okay, who are they? How can I identify them? What do they do? What can I know about them? And we, we always respond with who we are and what we do. And in a similar way, uh, those things actually kind of tie together. We usually identify ourselves with our job. Uh, we find it very tightly knit together as if it's one thing. Uh, and kind of like a good example that I have, um, it's kind of an older example, but I hope it makes sense. So uh, one of the best basketball players of all time, best point guards was a man named Allen Iverson. He played a lot in the 90s, he ended in the 2000s. He was ranked as the fifth best shooting guard in the NBA, so he's, he's decent, uh, just you know, kind of okay. Uh, he played about 14 seasons in the NBA. Uh, very cocky, had a big mouth, he's very, he's very well known for uh, his outbursts, for his rudeness, and for uh, being what he called himself the answer. His nickname for himself was, I'm the answer. So, slightly full of himself. Uh, during his last few seasons, he had a back injury, and he was out for about 16 games. Uh, and then after that, they put him on the bench for four games to kind of get him to slowly play a few minutes each game to get used to back uh, in the starting lineup. So he rode the bench for four games in a row, and he hated it. And in an interview, they asked him, you know, what's your thoughts on this? How do you feel uh, about sitting the bench? And here's what he said. This is a quote from his, from his interview. He said, why, sh why wouldn't I start? I'm a franchise player. I don't know any Olympian, any All-Star, any MVP, any scoring champion, any All-Star team leader that comes off the bench. So he's angry. He, I shouldn't be on the bench. It's not fair. And here's the, the main quote from this. And he said this. I would rather retire early before I did this again. I can't be effective playing this way. I'm just not used to it. It's not my style. So Alan Iverson was so attached to being in the starting lineup that not starting, he just got angry. I, I can't do this. I would rather retire. And actually, he does retire soon after that. So people think uh, he says his back injury was what screwed him up. 
but most people think, like myself, uh, that he just couldn't handle it. He wanted to be the MVP. He wanted to be the picture-perfect kid, and he didn't have that, so he quit. Uh, so he tied in what he did to who he was, and if he couldn't play, he wasn't Allen Iverson. He was just some no-name guy with dreads, and that's, that's not important to him. So we often do the same thing. Um, whether we identify as what we did as the MVP, the CEO, a science teacher, an electrician, a pastor, or whatever, uh, we find our purpose wrapped, our identity wrapped in our purpose. The things we're doing are what we, what we want known as and before, and we see that as kind of our purpose in life. And what's interesting is we know that we, we're tied to those things when an injury happens. So if you're injured and you can't teach anymore at school, or you lose your job, you get fired. Uh, maybe your workplace changes their stance on some ethical issues and you, you can't be there anymore. Uh, the company shuts down, your dream spouse leaves you, or your prized house is taken in a hurricane. And you realize that you have no uh, function in life, you feel purposeless, you have no identity. And we see these things happen to people all the time. So what's interesting is there's a real risk in finding your identity in something. There's a real risk because everything is going to fade. Everything will leave. Things change. We change. We leave. And it's really a risk. And you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, he quotes the book of Isaiah, and here's what he says. For all flesh, so all people, all humanity, is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So overall, all that we are and all that we do will all fade and cease to exist. It won't be important. It won't be noticed. It will be forgotten. So finding our identity and our purpose in things, is, it, it's a risk. It's a dangerous thing to do because not everything will last. And so what Peter's going to do, especially in suffering, is point us to what we can find our identity in and find our purpose in and see our future in. So the first thing we're going to look at, again, are Peter's going to show us that we have a granted or a given identity as a Christian, uh, that being a Christian gives us a, a high or supreme design or purpose, and thirdly, that we have a definite future. So we have a given identity, a supreme purpose, and a definite future. So first we're going to go to our identity in Christ. So if you look at verse 9 here, uh, Peter starts off and says this, But you, so you Christian, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Um, maybe you don't know, but the tallest building in the world exists in Dubai. Uh, I will try to pronounce it the best I can, and it's called the Burj Khalifa, maybe. I don't really know. Uh, we're going to call it BK for short because I can't pronounce that. So the BK stands at 2,716 feet. We think it's pretty high. Uh, it's double the size of the Empire State Building. So it is, I mean, it's massive. It is a huge building. Uh, it is tall, and usually when things are really tall, we're worried that they're going to topple over because they're top heavy. They're going to sway. They're going to. A collapse. So what happens in Dubai if an earthquake comes, because those happen, or a flood comes, or a, a massive windstorm comes, will it not just topple over? And the reason why it doesn't is not because it's, it's placed on the ground, but because of what's under it. So what we don't know is that the foundations of the building go deep in the ground. They go actually 170 feet to below the ground. So I mean, the foundation goes way down deep. Uh, so it's securely rooted. It's not just on a surface level. It goes deep. And that's why it can stand storms and stand trouble. And that's why it stays where it is. So we think about Christians are kind of the same way. Uh, we're not a Christian by some surface level idea, by some wishful thinking, by uh, something that's on the earth or something that we can have a job in. 
uh, our foundation of Christianity, of who we are, they're deep. They actually go before the foundation of the world. They go way deep. That's what Peter's trying to say. So again, he says we're a chosen race. We're going to try to unpack these things. Uh, and there's just so much in this verse. It's a verse you can just think on forever and ever. Uh, so a chosen race. So if you're a Christian, it means that God chose you. You're a chosen race, a chosen people. Uh, you believe on him because God moved first. If you look in verse 8, uh, he finished this thought by saying uh, that they, the people who reject Christ, they stumble because they disobey as they were destined to. So in the same way that those who reject Christ are doing so because it was God's desire, so are those who come to Christ because it was God's desire. God chose you. Uh, he wooed you. He opened your eyes. He drew you. And that's the same idea. Um, but God did that for you for life. Uh, probably the most famous chapter on this is Romans chapter 9. Uh, here's what God says. Um, so why did God choose you? What's kind of the reasoning? Uh, was it because I did something great? Was it because I'm mighty? Is it because I'm strong? Because, because I'm American? Why did God choose me? And God says it has nothing to do with anything in those things. He says this. It was not because of anything good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election, so God's choice, might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God displayed his mercy to you uh, as a Christian to choose you, uh, not because of anything you've ever done, which is great because it means that there's nothing you can do uh, sinfully that can reject that either. So you're not out of God's, out of God's saving purposes because God can do what he wants. God can save who he wants because it's not dependent upon you. Dependent upon God. So there's nothing in us that drew God to us. It was uh, his love and his mercy. So if you're Christian, it's because God loves you dearly. He loves you so much that he gave his son to save you, to give, him, to give you to himself. So your personhood and identity, first of all, is found in Christ. You are God's chosen one. You are his. Uh, he owns you. And if you look, the next one is a royal priesthood. So the, if you think about the Old Testament, this is kind of the Old Testament language. Uh, there was a temple, that's where God dwelled, and this, the priests were called that were in the, the line of the Levites. They were Aaron's bloodline. In order for a priest to go into the temple to meet with God, they had to be purified uh, by an innocent lamb or an innocent animal. And they had the blood splattered on them so they could be purified from their sin and stand before God. And when you think about it, it's kind of gross. And it smells, too. Blood doesn't smell good. And you, you have to do this every single day. So there are hundreds of animals killed over hundreds and hundreds of years. Blood being splattered every time they need to go in, another animal is killed. You have blood splattered on you. So if you wanted to go near to God, you had to get Aaron or one of the people in his bloodline who's a Levite and say, Hey, I need to go to God. I need you to stand in my way and go do it for me. So they would kill an animal, throw blood on you, throw blood on themselves, and enter in God's presence for you. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, God actually, Peter actually says this, that as Christians, we've been sprinkled with his blood, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So the reason why we can draw near to Christ is because we've been sprinkled by his blood. Just like the priests were, in the same way, we are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus to draw near to God, to be welcomed in his presence, to come near to him. We've been purified by his blood. And 1 Peter chapter 1 again says that this blood is precious. It's, it's better than any gold or any silver. It's by the Lamb of God. So this blood is done once for all time. Uh, all the other blood sacrifices you had to do over and over and over. But Jesus once for all time died and he draws you near. So we have God with us and because of Christ it's now us with God. We can dwell with God, be with God, be near him, talk to him, interact with him. 
You don't need a pastor to go to Christ. You can go to him today. That's the good news of the gospel is you are able to come to Christ because of what Christ has done in your place. So we are called a royal or a kingly priesthood uh, invited to come near to God. So you can go to God and have full access for all that you need and all that he is. So a royal priesthood, and now we're called a holy nation. Uh, so a holy people or a holy group. Uh, so Christians are a set-apart people. They're distinct. They are other than the world. They, are, uh, they don't conform. They're nonconformists, right? They stick out. And what's really great about this verse that I love is it's what you are. So you're called a holy nation. And there's no part of me that's holy, and I know that. Because I know my heart. I know my wickedness. I know my lying. I know my lust. I know my simple desires. Uh, for, so for God to call me holy is it's amazing because it's not based on me, but based on God's declaring over me of who I am because of Christ. So God is the one who qualifies me to be holy. He calls me holy because of what Jesus has done. Uh, God causes you to be holy. He sets you apart as holy. Um, not because of what you've done or who you are or what you're going to be. But God did this. God chose you. God gathered you to himself and he set you apart. So it's good news for those who stumble. Your holiness is not dependent upon your achievements. It's dependent upon God who called you and set you apart. So he qualifies you for that. He makes it so. He guarantees it. He secures it. It's good to know. So God, in this text, gives us our identity. So our identity is not something we have to earn or fight for or try to find or have to, or begin to upgrade. It's given. It's a granted identity to you. And that's how you know it won't fake. Because it's not yours to earn. It's yours to be given. So God chose you if you're a Christian. He sprinkled the blood of His Son on you that you may draw near to Him. And He sets you apart for Himself as holy. So the goodness of the gospel and our identity is that it is granted, not gained. So when we become severely ill, or we lose our job, we can't find our spouse, we can't perform which we're known for, we can't shoot the threes like Iverson used to do, we can rest secure because our identity is not earned, it's given. And God doesn't just take away things. He gives it and He holds you in it. So the goodness of the gospel is that our identity doesn't fade like the things do. Uh, it rests with the unchanging Christ. It rests in God's unchanging nature and self. And just like that tall building, our identity goes way back to the, before the foundation of the world. So it's secure. It's hidden away. It's tucked away. It can't be seen or shaken on a surface level. It's deep. And we can rest in that. It's a, great, it's a great thing to hear for these suffering Christians that your personhood in Christ is not going to be shaken by suffering. It stands firm because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So not only is our identity secure in Christ and what he has done and what God has done for us by setting us apart, uh, so too is our design and purpose in the world. So again, if you think back to the Old Testament, uh, as Peter keeps doing, if you remember, there's a people in the Bible called the nation of Israel. We all kind of know that name. We at least know that it exists. Well, God chose a, a nation of people, a group of people, uh, to be his own. And the question is, well, why did he choose Israel? I had a, a, an atheist teacher in junior college, and he used to always say, well, why not somebody else? Why not this group? Why not that group? Why Israel? And my answer was always, because God can do what he wants. That didn't fly very well, but here's what God actually says. He actually tells us exactly why. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's what it says. So, God said, it's not because of your size of your nation, how big you are, how grand you are. But he says this, it is because the Lord loves you. So God chose Israel because he loved them. And why did he love them? Because God can love somebody if he wants to. So it's not based on them, it's based on God. So it's so with you. You're, 
identity in Christ is based on God's loving you. So thinking back to the Old Testament, uh, God chose a nation, he chose a people, and he did certain things for them. He showed them miracles, he saved them from slavery in Egypt, uh, he gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them the prophets, he gave them kings, he gave them rulers, he gave them miracles, he blessed them over and over and over, he gave them the promised land, he had all these things for these people, but why did he do that? Why did God do these things? What's great about the Bible is the Bible answers these questions in the Bible. So there's a psalm, Psalm 106. It's kind of, it's kind of like a commentary-like verse on why God did this. And here's what it says. Psalm 106, verse 8, says this. Yet he, so God, yet he saved them, Israel. So God saved Israel for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So God chose Israel. He saved them. He continued to save them over and over and over again. Because he wanted to demonstrate who he is. He wanted a nation to see that their God is huge, he is powerful, and he is good. So God did to demonstrate his, his worth and his goodness, uh, not because of Israel's strength or identity. So look in verse 9. Here's what we see. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So God did that. He, he chose you for himself so that that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God chose you and saved you. Uh, why? Did God save you so you wouldn't go to hell? Yes, te technically this is true. I would not deny that. God didn't want you to go to hell. That's why he, that's why he saved you. Uh, did he save you because he wanted you and his family? Yes, this is true. I would not deny it. The Bible says that in Ephesians chapter 1. We can see this in Romans 8. God does love you and wants you to be in his family. But the, the greater reason, which is so great to see in this text, is he did it. He saved you so you could proclaim his worth. So God did it so he would be made known, so that he would be made much of as supreme. So what's great about this verse, about, about our purpose as a Christian, it's not dependent upon your situation in life. A lot of times we have to have good health to perform, perform a certain task. You have to be a certain age to do a certain thing. You have to have a certain degree to work at a certain place. But for the Christian, you get to proclaim God's greatness as your purpose no matter where you are. If you're at work, if you're at school, to your neighbors, on vacation, uh, you, work, you work off the clock forever. You, you can work anywhere you want because your purpose is to display God's greatness. And what's great is it's not met by your circumstances but by salvation. So what's really good is as a Christian, thousands of people flood by and some would talk to you, most of them would throw a drink at you or spit on you or say something very charitable in their own terms. And uh, I had a guy uh, named Ray Gilmore, and I remember his name very well. Uh, and he came up to me, he's from New York City, and he asked me this question. I wrote down my journal the day it happened. Here's what he said. Why are you out here? I'm just curious. And he didn't ask it in a rude way. He didn't say it angrily. He just had a drink in his hand and very calmly said, so why are you out here? And I got to explain to this man named Ray that I came from Southern Illinois and drove eight hours to come to Bourbon Street to stand in the middle of the street to talk to a guy named Ray from New York City about the excellencies of Christ. That's why I came. I didn't come because I wanted a free ride. I didn't come to see New Orleans. I came because I wanted to tell somebody, and apparently it was Ray, that God is supreme, that God is great, that God has given us His Son. And one of the great things about Christianity is that we get to do that. We get to have not the purpose everywhere we are, but we get to have a purpose for existing is I exist to tell you that God is greater than life. 
And that's great because it surpasses everything else. Everything, uh, everything else in life changes or fades. And with God, we get to do this uh, as long as we live. Something about Christianity that I really like, that's helpful to understand, and then we'll move on, is everything that God commands us to do in the gospel, He has demonstrated or shown you how to do it. So let me explain. I'll give you three quick examples, really, really quick. Uh, Jesus says to love your enemies. Well, that's really hard. How do we see that done? Well, Romans chapter 5 says that Jesus died for us, who are His enemies. Uh, the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives and to give of themselves for them. Well, how do we know how to do that? How, is, how can we do such a thing? Well, the Bible says that Jesus loved us and gave himself for his bride, for the church. Uh, the Bible says in Romans that we're called to weep with those who weep. So it's a biblical command to weep with those who are weeping. And we see Jesus wept openly with Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus died. So what's great is all the commands in the Bible, we have these things where God is actively doing it, he has done it, or will do it. So it's, God's not a hypocrite. He calls to do things that he accomplishes. So in John chapter 12, Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. So Jesus specifically came to glorify God. He came to show God's worth, to show that God is supreme, to show that God is good in his death. So what's great is Jesus came for the glory of God. So how much more who have been saved out of darkness can we see God's glory as well? We get to see that God is glorious, that He is good, that He is kind, that He is gracious. Because He saved us out of death and into life. So if you're Christians, because God brought you out of darkness and put you in life. And how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we're called to enjoy God. We're called to praise Him and make much of Him. And I think we always ask the question, well, how do I do that? How do I display what I enjoy? Uh, you talk about it, you praise it, you shout about it. Um, it's very easy to do. So if you're a Cubs fan, which you, you should be if you're not, uh, if you're a, a Warriors basketball fan or you like the Blackhawks, you like the Yankees, whatever, how do people know what sports team you like? You display it. You either wear a t-shirt, you wear a hat, or better yet, you talk about it all the time and drive me nuts. You tell me all their stats. You tell me that they won. You tell me that they lose. You tell me they're, they're coached. You tell me their trades. You tell me the playoffs, whatever. You display what you enjoy. So as, as a Christian, if we enjoy Christ, we should be able to display Him. It's not really a challenge. It's actually an invitation to do that, and we love it. So to further enjoy Christ, we have to display Him. Our peak, kind of the way that we further enjoy God, is by bragging about Him, by talking about how good He is. It, it kind of hits the peak of our enjoyment of Him. So the more you talk about Him, the more you enjoy Him. And the more you enjoy Him, the more you talk about Him. So think about this charge as suffering Christians that Peter's writing to. So as you're suffering, as you're being carried away to the lion's den, proclaim that God is greater than the lions. So this is a huge charge to suffering Christians. Hey, as your house is getting torn to shreds, hold fast to the gospel. Trust God, he's good. So why is that? Why does Peter want you to understand your identity and your purpose as a suffering Christian or as someone who's suffering? I think it's because... It demonstrates to the world that we truly are not of this world, that we really do love the things that are above and outside and beyond. Uh, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1, that to depart and be with Christ is far better. So if that's true, that means that in our health or lack of, in our great gain or great loss, in a good job or a bad job, or in the great talent that we have or lose, we can display God's goodness because of who He is and our identity and our purpose in Christ because it's not something that fades or stays here. It lasts forever. So you display God's greatness mostly in suffering, 
by holding fast to the gospel and proclaiming his goodness in it. And that's Peter's message to those who are suffering. So we're called not to be quiet, but to even just say, you know, God's been good to me in this pain today. He's sustained us. And that's what Peter calls us to do. So that being said, what does our future look like? As a Christian, what does our future hold? Uh, When we lose our career, we lose our health, we lose our house. uh, What does our future look like? So Peter says now that we have a definite future. Um, January 6, 2016, so just, just last year, uh, Pope Francis released a video talking about his hopes and intentions for the world. It's on YouTube. You can look it up. Um, and in reference to the whole world of religions, here's what he said. Many people think differently and feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty we have for all people. We are all children of God. So Pope Francis made a declaration that no matter who you are, what you believe, uh, if you're Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, whatever, we are all God's children. So the question is, is that true? Are we all God's children? Well, believe it or not, the Bible disagrees with the Pope yet again. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are all born children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 to those who are disagreeing with him, who don't believe that he is the Son of God, he says this, If God were your Father, you would love me. But because you cannot bear to hear my word, you are of your Father the devil. So Jesus says if you don't love the identity of Christ and who he is and what he came to do and see him and love him as God, God is not your Father. Jesus is the separation between children and not children, between people of God and not people of God. So we are not all God's children. We are all born, like Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, like our father the devil. Uh, we are destined for destruction, and we are, we are doomed. But to those who have responded to God's mercy, who, have, who God has called to himself, we are called children of God. Let's look at verse 10. So once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So Peter just even levels the floor even more, saying, just being a person, the essence of personhood is being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're missing the point of being a person. It's a deep claim. So Peter makes this staggering statement that just the biblical framework of being a person, of being a human, is only being in Christ, being a Christian, being a chosen people. So apart from Christ, your 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 life is it's, you're missing the shot. You're missing the point. You don't exist just to be a person. You exist to be a person of God. So God created personhood that we might enjoy and glorify Him. And that's the purpose of it, that we might see and have Him. So, if you're a Christian, you are God's people. As verse 10 says, you are His children. Uh, verse 9 says, we are people for His own possession. So our destiny as believers is firmly fixed in eternity as children and people of God. We will dwell forever in the heavens with God as our God and we as his people. We will live forever with him and see him for the rest of our lives in eternity. So again, whether we have lost our marriage or our job or our talent or our health, Christians are not strapped or entangled to these things because our future is not here, but it's in eternity. It's an eternity future. So we will forever be his people and he will forever be our God. So do you, do you see how great this picture is of why Peter's saying these things? He wants you to understand that in suffering, when everything is taken from you, you have everything to gain and more. And you have an eternity to do it. You have an infinite amount of time to do this. So what, what great hope is this for Christians who are, who are suffering, who are in pain? 
Again in verse 10, here's how Peter ends this. I want to think on this just for a minute. So he says, once you were a people, or not a people, I'm sorry, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we know that God's merciful. Christians know this. We don't deny this, but we forget. So Peter's reminding us, you have, now you're getting mercy. You're getting the peak of what God's mercy is, and that is being God's people. So what is this mercy? So, so far, Peter's covered that God's mercy is God's choosing you before the foundation of the world. He chose you as his own. God placing you where you are in life to hear the gospel or to see the Bible, to have a Bible, to understand who he is. It's his working in your life to cause you to be born again, as we see in chapter 1. It's his mercy and giving you a new heart to love him and to see him as he is. It's God's giving you a faith to believe in his son. And as we just covered, there's three things that Peter tells us, and I want to see how we have that mercy revealed to us in those three things. So our identity. Jesus identified with us in life, in suffering, and in death and for our sins so that we might identify with him in his resurrection as sons of God through him. So Jesus identified with you so we can identify with him as sons of God. Our purpose, Jesus displayed that the ultimate personhood, the ultimate purpose of humanity is, is found in glorifying God, which he supremely showed by his death to bring us to God, to glorify God forever with God. So our purpose is found in displaying God's worth on earth as we'll see it forever in heaven. In our future, God's mercy is shown in Jesus' descent from heaven to earth that we might ascend from earth to heaven. So our future is secured. It's placed in heaven where he is. We'll spend all of eternity there. And God did all these things to demonstrate his mercy and to declare his great power so that we might declare and sing forever as the hymn Amazing Grace reads. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross. God, we thank you for demonstrating mercy to us, for saving us to have us as your own. God, you... Uh, did not see anything worthy in us, but you chose to love us and to give us life. God, we never forget your mercy that you've given to us. Help us to understand that you are good, that you are rich in mercy. God, I, I just feel uh, a thought now to pray for Ray, uh, who I met in Mardi Gras. I pray that you would uh, show him the gospel again that we spoke of, that you remind him of it, and that you would demonstrate your worth and your goodness to him. I pray that you convict him of sin, that you'd show him that you are good, and that the cross saves. Um, God, be with those who we know who don't know you. Uh, demonstrate your worth to them as well. Help us to display your greatness and your worth in our lives, and that we would glorify you uh, for all that you've done for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.